hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, turn with me in your Bibles to Acts 8. And we can stand this week because it's not quite as long as last week's. Acts chapter 8. So you remember Stephen was being stoned. Look at verse 60 from chapter 7. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For, they had not yet fa- for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of all the Samaritans. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, How can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. 
In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does this prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. This is God's word. Father, we do pray that you would do the work that only you can do to bring this down into our minds and hearts, cause it to pierce us, and do, um, do your work. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The story of Stephen is, is difficult. Um, you know, Stephen's one of those guys that you kind of root for. Like Barnabas, he's, we don't know very much about him, but what little we see about him, he's a likable guy. And this is not how any of us would have wanted the story to end. And so I think that it makes verse 1 so hard to read that here's Saul approving of, of uh, Stephen's death approved of his execution. It comes across as cold-hearted because it was. But the reality is that Saul came to the same conclusion that Stephen had. He realized that the old covenant and the new covenant wasn't reconcilable. He couldn't have both. And unlike Stephen, he was committed to the traditions of man over the kingdom of God. And he missed the thread of redemption that Stephen took and wove through that entire Uh, sermon that he gave, that thread of redemption that is Christ. Saul missed that the promise of Genesis 3 to to Adam and Eve after they sinned, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. He missed the promise to Abraham that through his seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. He misunderstood the promise to David that his throne would endure forever and wasn't, after all, an earthly throne. He was lost on the prophet Isaiah who said the Messiah would come and suffer to die for the sins of his people. And he missed out on the meaning of so many psalms like Psalm 2.8. Ask of me and I will get, make the nations your, inherit, your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And so Saul with his own form of piety approved of the execution of Stephen. And I, I mentioned that again as I mentioned it last week to, to remind us to remember where Saul is. Remember the kind of person that he was and what God did in his life. We're going to see that next week. But then we see in verses 1 and 2 that the persecution grew. And this persecution resulted in the scattering of the early church, these new believers. As Saul was going around ravaging the church, dragging men and women off and throwing them in jail, people were literally running for their life or fear of their life. I don't know that they had the perspective that we have in looking back of seeing how um, this was actually used to grow the church. I think that they probably struggled. Lord, why is this happening? What is happening? The reality is that persecution is an unlikely candidate 
for growth in anyone's plans. It's not one that we would pick or choose or that would come out of any of our strategy means meetings, but God uses unlikely means because he gets the glory for that. Jesus said that uh, uh, the, the, the idea here of, of, of this scattering was that of an agricultural idea, the idea that seed needed to be scattered. And it, it went along with the idea of what Jesus said about the, a grain, unless it dies and falls to the earth, it can't grow and produce fruit. And so the early church was experiencing this, this scattering that happened. And I wonder if we consider in our own lives when we get scattered or when our plans get interrupted or just when we have unmet expectations, do we consider what God is doing or what God may be doing? I mean, the reality is it's hard because we make our plans. And let's face it, we live in a world that you get what you pay for. You know, you, get, you earn what you work for. You do well and you study for the test, you expect a good grade. You work hard at your job, you expect to be paid, you expect to get promoted. And so the idea that we're in this kingdom that doesn't really work that way is hard for us. We want to get what we deserve in some respects. Now, none of us would admit that openly because we know what we all deserve, right? But, but, but after we get past that, don't we kind of work that way? Lord, I made all these sacrifices. I did all these things. Why are you letting this happen to me? Why am I experiencing this loss, this interruption, this scattering? But we have to come back to the reality that God is at work and that he is user, using the scattering in our lives for his purpose. We may not know why. We may not understand it. And frankly, we may not like it. This story is overused, but I'm going to use it anyway because it's so powerful. And I can think of no other example over the last 150 years in the church that has led to the evangelization of more people than the story of those five missionaries who were killed in Ecuador in the 1950s. Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Pete Fleming, Roger Darian, and Ned McCulley went down to work among the Alka Indians with their wives and their children. They made contact. They went in. They thought everything, everything was working. They were so excited. And in a moment, their lives were gone. And yet, that story, even today, has led to more people praying, more people giving, and more people going than any other story I'm aware of in our recent church history. It doesn't make sense. And, and what compounds the story even more is the fact that Nate Saint's sister Rachel and Elizabeth Elliot, Jim's wife, went back to that same village and worked among them and led many to faith, including some of the killers. God uses upside-down ways, backwards ways. His, his thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. And your story may not be as dramatic, but the reality is, is some of you have come here because of a job or a family situation, or some other reason. It may not been, have been what you planned. It may not have been what you wanted. Or you just may not be where you thought you would be in life. God scattered you. But God is using you. And He's going to continue to use you. And get ready, because He may scatter you again. But don't fear. Because God is revealing an incredible story through you, through your life, as he's weaving together his story and his kingdom. So we can take courage. 
Even though Saul was on a rampage, he was literally trying to destroy the church. The ESV translate, it translates verse 3 as ravaging the church after, house after house. He was systematically going through terrorizing Christians trying to eliminate this new way. Luke writes that he dragged off men and women, throwing them into prison. In other words, he was relentless. He was on a mission. And even in his own words, as he looked back when he wrote Galatians, in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 13, he says, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. He tried to destroy it and was violent in his means, but God showed him mercy and revealed to Saul his son, Jesus. So when we look at today's sermon title, The Gospel for the Impossible, Saul, Paul is just one example of how the good news of Jesus is for those who seem impossible to save. But this isn't the only impossibility we see here. We see Saul first. Next we see this group called the Samaritans. That the gospel is for the unworthiest. And in the eyes of the Jews, the Samaritans were among the, unworthy, the most unworthy or the unworthiest. The Jews had looked down upon the Samaritans literally for centuries. The Samaritans emerged in this region just outside of Jerusalem. Uh, after, in 722 B.C., when the Assyrians came in and they, they, they conquered the land, they carried off most of the Jews to Assyria. And the ones who remained intermarried, so that when the Israelites were allowed to come back and wanted to rebuild, they discovered that these Samaritans were damaged goods. They were no longer pure Jews, and so they began to look down on them. And the rift only grew over time as the Samaritans began. They eventually rejected the Old Testament, or what we would consider the Old Testament of the Scriptures. They only considered the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, to be their Bible. And so this set up a rift. And then they decided that God was to be worshipped on Mount Gerizim there, and they still believe that today and have a temple there. So this created this rift more and more. And if you remember when Jesus outlined his great commission, he said, as you're going into all the world, and then before his ascension, he said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. There's three regions he mentions, Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And so that's what we're seeing happening. These first seven chapters of Acts that we've looked at, we've seen it unfold in Jerusalem. Now we're seeing it begin to spread out into all Judea and Samaria. And by the end now of this chapter, we're going to see it begin to go to the ends of the earth. But before we see that, I want us to notice one other thing about this dispersion. I've already said this was not a planned mission of the church. The apostles didn't sit down and come up with this plan of scattering everybody. Hey, persecution is the way to grow the church. Let's find someone to persecute us. No, this was God's plan. And it was largely carried out, largely done. When I say largely, I mean largely, mostly, almost exclusively by lay people. This was not done by professionals. (laughs) If you notice... Everybody was dispersed but the apostles. Look in verse 1. It says the apostles weren't. They stayed in Jerusalem. And we could say a lot about the idea of of professionalism and so forth. You know, Philip is called an evangelist. He's actually the only one with that title in the New Testament. But I think that besides Philip, truly an evangelist, had the gift of evangelism. Most of the people, as they were dispersed, lay people, probably did not have the gift of evangelism. Probably had other spiritual gifts. There probably were some. They were simply witnesses to who Jesus was and what he had done. 
And I think even if we surveyed this room right now and I asked, how did you come to saving faith? My guess is that more than half of us would tell of someone who was not a professional who led us to faith. You know, two, two people in my life, a Sunday school teacher who taught me the wordless book song that the Lord used to convict my heart, and then my mom during family devotions. My dad was at an elders meeting that night, and he wasn't even there to witness it. It was, it was my mom who led me to faith. Lay people, not professionals. So my, my point is, is that each of us has a responsibility to share the gospel, even if we don't see ourselves as evangelists. Even if you, I don't have the gift of evangelism. I'm, I'm, I'm just not even that great at carry on, carrying on conversation sometimes. And you know people that do have the gift of evangelism. And if, you, if you're like me, you've probably envied them. I, one guy who I knew, he could literally look at a leaf on the ground and kind of turn it into some illustration for the gospel. He just oozed it everywhere he went. Or you think of somebody like Frank Barker, who was the pastor emeritus now of Briarwood when I was at Briarwood, I, I lost count of the number of people whose testimonies were something to the effect of, they started with, I had lunch with Frank Barker. I mean, it just so many people came to faith as a result of just, it started off at a conversation over lunch. Frank Barker has the gift of evangelism. I don't have that gift. And so when I look at evangelism, I struggle. But notice how God used non-professionals, people as they were being scattered, lay people who were just faithful where they were. And as I, I thought of this and as I read, it was interesting, uh, the, the, the number of things that I read this week, it seemed like every writer had a story to tell of someone who was an example of this. And it just it caused me to think of my own dad. My dad worked for Delta Airlines for 30-some years. He was a cabinet builder by trade, and they actually had a cabinet shop. He was a woodworker, believe it or not, at an airline. And I can think of a handful of guys right off the bat, I know that there were more, who came to faith as a result of my dad just being a faithful witness where he was. My dad's not an evangelist. Um, he, um, his spiritual gifts would probably be teaching and service. He is a hands-on guy's guy. I, you wouldn't know that knowing me because I don't have an ounce of any of that in my body. He can fix anything, do anything. He works with his hands, loves to work. And as he was working he told those working next to him about his faith. And what's been interesting now is to look back and to see the the sense of kind of heritage of some of those guys who now have not only children walking with the Lord, but now grandchildren walking with the Lord. So don't underestimate the influence that you have where God has planted you. You don't have to be a professional. You don't have to be an evangelist or have the, the, the gift of evangelism. Just be a witness to who Jesus is and what he's done in your life and tell other people about him. This is how God grows his church. So the gospel is for the unworthy. Um, We've said it's it's not only for those who were uh, the most unworthy, the Samaritans. We see this here, but we see this specifically in the life of one particular Samaritan, Simon. Simon the Great, as he called himself, a magician. He was... um, not a, not a sleight-of-hand trickster, but he was probably into the occult. He was into the demonic realm. He was the worst kind of magician. And he had been able to amaze people to the point that they called him the power of God. This is pretty incredible. And notice in verses 9 and 11 that Luke writes, he amazed the people. And in verses 10 and 11, he writes that they paid attention to him because of this amazement. But then he flips this language around. 
and says that now Simon was amazed at Philip after he professed and was baptized. He was amazed at the signs now that he saw Philip doing because there was a genuineness to it. But then things begun to unravel. So after the Samaritans receive the gospel, the apostles hear about it in Jerusalem. They send two representatives. This is probably to verify what's happened. Again, for most Jews to hear that the Samaritans could hear and respond to the gospel was kind of a big deal. So they probably went down to verify, but also to validate. And we see something unusual or atypical happen here in that even at salvation, the Holy Spirit isn't given or they aren't baptized in the Holy Spirit immediately. And we see this happen in a couple places, three places to be exact. What's interesting is where we see each of these atypical things happen are in Jerusalem, Samaria, and with Cornelius, the end of the earth, the Gentile, Cornelius, representative of what Jesus had promised through the Great Commission. See, this happened at Pentecost. Now it happens uh, with the Samaritans. And this happens for validation. That the, the, hear, hear me, they, did not, they were not saved apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is what quickens our heart, gives us new life. But for some reason, the Lord withheld that baptism until the apostles came and laid on hands. And I think that it was not only for the people to see that they were included and were genuinely given the gift of the Holy Spirit, that there was no guesswork in it. There was a Pentecost-like event for the Samaritans. And again, we're going to see it happen with Cornelius. But I think it was also for the apostles to see that Jesus was keeping his promises. That Jesus was doing exactly what he said he would do. Yeah, my gospel is not just for the Jews, but it's going to go to the ends of the earth. But then Simon shows his true colors that even though he had professed faith and been baptized, he sees this sign, this wonder, and he wants to know how he can get it. And he thinks money is the answer. Peter rebukes him saying, your heart is not right before God. Now, we don't know the end of the story. Luke doesn't tell us what happens with Simon. It leaves us a little perplexed. Did Simon repent or not? And, of course, different scholars have different opinions on what happened here. We we don't know. But it's interesting that the language Peter uses when he says in verse 21, you have neither part nor lot in this matter, is very similar to the language that Jesus used with Peter when he wanted to wash Peter's feet, and Peter said, no, 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 no. And Jesus said what to him? If you, if you don't let me wash your feet, you have no part or not, no lot in this matter. The difference is, even though we don't know what happened with Simon, Peter repented. Peter repented immediately. And he said, in typical Peter fashion, don't only wash my feet, wash my whole body, right? He, he realized what he was missing out on. And then we see Peter fall again and repent and be restored again. And so the point is, even though we don't know the outcome of Simon's story, our faith is keeping with repentance. The way of faith, the walk of faith, the mark of the Christian, the sign of life in the Christian is repentance. It's not just repentance at the point of salvation. It is the way that we live our lives. Are you convicted of sin? Do you desire to grow, to know God more, to love Him more? Let me just say, even as it, at times, it may just be a tinge of conviction. As we read the law, or as you look at God's Word, or as you pray, these are the signs of life that the Holy Spirit is working within you. So even if you do struggle in your faith, even if you do struggle to believe that God is real, that He loves you, and that He 
that He is at work in your life, look for these signs of life that God is working in you. So the gospel is for not only Saul, not only for the Samaritans, not only for Simon the Great, but the gospel is also for the ends of the earth. Verses 26 to 40, we see this Ethiopian eunuch, and he has come to Jerusalem to worship from a land far, far away. Ethiopia in this day would have been much larger, most likely, than modern-day Ethiopia. It would have included parts further south, including Sudan and Kenya. And in other words, this was the end of the, the modern known earth. You know, this was a faraway place. And what's interesting, though, is before we get into this, is what we see come out of Africa, particularly this part of Africa, in just the first few centuries of the early church. We see a number of church leaders emerge, like Cyprian and Tertullian and Augustine, all from this part of Africa. We don't know how the Lord used this Ethiopian eunuch, but he was indeed, if not the first, one of the first to take the gospel message to this part of Africa. Now, he was a court official of the queen. He was a high-ranking person. Uh, He had come to Jerusalem to worship. We don't know if he was a seeker uh, in the sense that he was just kind of checking things out, if he was curious, if he was what the Jews called a God-fearer, meaning that he was a Gentile but worshipped the Jewish God. But he he, he had been there to worship God. That was his intent. And now he's coming back, and he's in his chariot, Uh, which was a sign of wealth. This would have been, in most cases, a sign not to approach, but God specifically tells Philip to go up to him. And he's reading from the prophet Isaiah. But notice that he's not just anywhere in the book of Isaiah. He would have been reading aloud. That's a standard practice in this time. Philip would have heard what he was reading. And when he heard it, he recognized it. And what's interesting about Isaiah 53 is it's, still known to this day among some as the forbidden chapter of Isaiah. Uh, If you engage with modern-day Jews, most have never read it. Uh, Many rabbis discourage the reading of Isaiah 53. Um, And we found this to be true when when we were in Israel. Leslie and I, the first time that we went over there, uh, we were there to do evangelism. And on a Sunday morning, so... Jews celebrate the Sabbath, Shabbat, on Saturday, sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday. So all the soldiers would go home for Shabbat and then come back Sunday morning. So we went to meet the train Sunday morning early, filled full of soldiers, getting off the train, going back to their duty stations. And we had these little testimonies written by an Israeli soldier who had come to faith in Jesus. And we were passing these out. And so we stood in the train station in the course of just a few minutes. You know, you pass a bunch of these out. And then it, it empties out, and we finish, and we turn to walk away. And, of course, as we're walking away, we're picking up the ones that got thrown down. And Two soldiers come back to us, and they, they actually get to Leslie before me, but they're clearly not happy. And so I went over to engage in conversation with them, and Leslie encouraged them. as they, you know, Their question was, why are you here? We have our religion. You have your religion. Why are you here? And Leslie encouraged them to open and look at Isaiah 53. And we had these little Hebrew Bibles so they could read along in their own language. And, and you could see their whole attitude changed reading something that I think for them was probably the first time. It changed their attitudes and their response. And I have no idea what the Lord would do with that. But the reality is it was the forbidden chapter because it paints such a clear picture of who Jesus is, who the Messiah would be, and how he would die for the sins of of his people. And this is exactly where 
the eunuch is reading when Philip walks up. And Philip says, do you understand what you're reading? And his response is, how can I unless somebody explains it to me? And Philip opened his mouth in verse 35, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. So just like Stephen did last week in his sermon, weaving that thread of redemption all the way through the scriptures now, Philip is doing this for the Ethiopian eunuch, showing this thread of redemption that is Jesus. And the eunuch responds, and seeing water, he asks to be baptized, and Philip baptizes them, and as they're coming to to step out of the water, Philip is no more. He disappears. And the Ethiopian eunuch goes on rejoicing, and Philip finds himself in the city Azotus, or what's known now as Ashkelon, this ancient Philistine city, which wouldn't have been far from Gaza, but the text says he found himself there. So I don't know what happened. Something supernatural. Um, it's not normal for this to happen, the, uh, for the eunuch to have seen him no more and for him to simply find himself there. Uh, but then Philip continues on, and he goes from Ashkelon sharing the gospel, and he's headed north to, to the town of Caesarea up along the coast, and we'll see him there later in Acts. We don't know the impact that this had on Africa, as we've said, but we know that God doesn't make mistakes He has a plan, and as we look back through Acts, we see how he's beginning to weave things together to build his church in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and now to the ends of the earth. That God is indeed faithful to all of his promises. Not one of his words passes away. Jesus was carrying the promise out that he made to the disciples in Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria, to the end of the earth. The gospel's good news. The gospel's good news because... We're so unworthy. And the gospel is good news because Jesus is so worthy that he laid down his glory, that he came to suffer and to die for you and for me. Listen to these words from Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is our Savior. This is our Redeemer, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we today would see our great Savior, Christ, for what he's done and what he is doing God, I pray that you would cause us to not only be moved in thanksgiving as we are thankful for our great salvation, but Lord, cause us to be moved by compassion, to want to share, to look, look around us. What are the opportunities you've given us, Lord, to be faithful with those opportunities, to be a testimony to who Jesus is and what he's done? I pray, Lord, that Christ the King would be a gospel church Not only a gospel-believing church, but a gospel-proclaiming church. And not just a gospel-proclaiming church from the pulpit, but a gospel-proclaiming church in our very lives as we go out into the community. And Lord, that you would then use this light of the gospel, bearing out in the way we live our lives and the way we speak to others, to draw 
many more to yourself. We pray this in Jesus' name.